The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. Hi, and welcome to It's Relatable on Mind, Body, Spirit FM, where we talk about all things relationship. I'm your host, Carrie O'Driscoll, and I'm so happy you're here. Get comfortable, and let's dig in. Hi, everyone. I want to introduce you to today's guest, Julia Lee Barkley Morton. She is a friend of mine and award-winning writer and theater director, and she's had her work produced and published internationally. She uses writing, workshops, coaching, editing, um, art, theater, and yoga to do something she says is unearthing the nature of our realities, which are always more complicated than the way that they present. The goal of her work is to give voice to what she calls the unadapted ones, the unknown, the unheard, unseen, and unloved. As a workshop leader and coach, she guides writers to trust their own instincts and listen to their own unique voices. And as a yoga teacher, she guides students to trust their body's deepest wisdom. Before the COVID lockdown in 2020, she led writing retreats on an island in Scotland. And her stage work gives voice to inner conflicts and conflicting realities. Her personal obsessions are with class, trauma, and how we act violently against each other by relegating people and even parts of ourselves to the other when they don't fit what we think is reality. She recently discovered that she's autistic and that helps her to sort of make sense of this focus on listening out for and embodying the unseen and the unheard. And part of what we're going to be talking about today is her most recent book called The Mortality Shot. It was published in October 2022 by Liquid Cat Books, and she wrote it while she was recovering from long-haul COVID and right as she was being diagnosed with autism. This book explores our relationship to mortality, and it's really, really fascinating. It's a series of short vignettes, short stories although this book is nonfiction. Her plays have been performed in New York City and other places around the world. She has been in residence at the Vermont Studio Center and the Wesleyan Writers Conference, and she's had her other work published in many different places. She lives in New York City and is currently working on a memoir about being diagnosed as autistic in her late 50s and how it was her intensive yoga teacher training that actually led her there. And I will include links to all of her work and her website at the end of the show in the show notes. So without further ado, I would like you to start listening to our conversation about our relationship to mortality. All right. So yeah, I'm really excited to have this conversation. I think it's a really 
timely conversation to have about our relationship to our own mortality and or mortality in general, right? Um, mm-hmm. Just because of the time that we live in. So um, I am curious to know from you, is this something that you kind of have always had a relationship with in your mind? Or is it something that, you know, has shifted and changed over time? Or maybe both? Uh, well, both, actually. Yeah, that's a better because like, yes, absolutely. And um, the first short story in the mortality shot is is it's fictionalized, but it's based on an event from my childhood of mm-hmm. uh, that. Um, you know, my stepfather brought me to see this wreck of a car and told me about, you know, these two women who died. And it was a guy who yeah. had driven me around. It's just, it was a really weird. So yeah. that uh it was quite a you know, thing just to have right in your face and to see blood in a car. It was a smashed car. You know, it was just, it was a yeah. really violent image. And um, I obviously remembered it. And that's sort of, the, that's where the story started from. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and then, yeah, I mean, he was also, uh, that particular first stepfather was a minister and, um, and my mother was a periodic Sunday school teacher. And there was this very strange relationship to that because they were very radical on one hand. And then part of this very institution on the other hand, it was all mm. this kind of weird mixture. And we were in rural Maine. And so it was like everybody was really confused. He would yell at the congregation for supporting the Vietnam War and calling themselves Christians. And then mm. we'd get kicked out of another parish and sent somewhere else. So like, wow. very, but, but so this whole idea though of God and what's heaven and what this and that, and, and my mother was telling Sunday school students one thing. And then when I would ask her, she's like, well, I think it's just a bunch of gases. And like, you know, so it's just this kind of really mixed up uh, ser- series of, of, of uh, pieces of information about that. And, and yeah. And then from when I remember um, like, yeah, then I became it for a long series of reasons. You know, I became an evangelical Baptist when I was like 11, <laughs> like mm. another 11 year old friend, 10 year old friend converted me. Mm. And uh, it was a time of very big distress in my, my life and a lot of movement. It was very ripe time to catch me, catch me for that moment. And, um, and, you know, there's a lot of fire and brimstone in the Baptist church. And yeah. so I went around witnessing door to door and telling people, you know, about God. And and wow. then as I began to doubt that a few years later, you know, and I became more about theater and art and less about that, I became very concerned about that. I was like, well, what does that mean now? <laughs> so, mm. so there's like all of this childhood. So that's one part. And that part right. is kind of addressed in the short stories in the book yeah and then what started happening later in life it well starting with my grandmother when i was 16 is people started dying and then and then when my grandmother died uh i don't think i have this anywhere in the book but when my grandmother died um i had this very this very very specific feeling of her entering like something had shifted in me very big thing shifted Mm. inside of me and i always knew her soul had entered me and it sounds really like woo and stuff but i was sure of it you know it's like one of those weird things like it's beyond what you yeah yeah actually want to think about it it was like no that happened and i changed i mean i actually changed in a lot of ways so it Mm. was uh very interesting moment and um 
And so, you know, and then what the book deals with is more the mature, then it goes into then being older and people dying and having to really try to process that. Then to, and where I am now, which shifted was with the COVID when I got the COVID and, you know, it didn't put me in the hospital right away, but it did four months later with long haul and all this stuff very early on in the pandemic when literally no one knew what was going on. Then it was about fear. And just like, oh, my God, am I going to die? And that was like a whole other level of dealing with mortality. And then so it wasn't just about loss and grief of somebody else. It was about what's my, you know, how I'm I'm this vulnerable. And that is a whole other level of dealing with mortality. (laughs) It's like. Okay, so this is different. So that you know, yeah. I know it's a long answer, but I'm 59. So you know, these are the the the, the answer. The short and long is yes, obviously it has been, and those are that's a thumbnail of the progression. Yeah, no, I think it is. There is that distinction between like this happens to other people, and oh crap, this could happen to me. <laughs> right, will, will you know? definitely happen to you. I mean, that's the thing. Yes, like, about this, like maybe. <laughs> Right. Right. The one thing we know. <laughs> yeah. I do and it is it's it's funny to think about and I don't mean funny ha, huh? you know, I mean funny ironic. But to think about how um you know, we can we kind of dip in and out of that, I think, depending mm-hmm. oh, on yeah. what the circumstances are. Mm-hmm. Um and 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 I think that a lot of you know, because of that, I think there's this sort of incongruence. Like we don't have a kind of collective experience of that unless there's something like a war or a pandemic, right? Where there are big numbers of us that are facing that um, all at the same time. And I, and I think it shifts things a little bit. And I kind of think that that's where we are right now, you know, in, Mm -hmm in this particular space in in the collective is there's this like we're still trying to be able to dip in and out of that (laughs) we're still trying to figure out some sort of semblance of normalcy instead of really coming to terms with what does that feel like exactly and i feel like you know it's really interesting because i feel like the pandemic has ripped it apart and shown most people don't want to look at it of course but all the inequities and, you know, the way it's affected different populations and, you know, and yes, on one level it's affected everybody, but not on another level. You know, you've got people in Davos, you know, coming in on their private planes with their air quality and their, you know, need to test before they get a badge and wearing masks and doing, you know, so this, by the way, everybody's listening to this. That's what the rich white guys are doing. So if you're not doing it, you're kind of being played, you know, it's like that look at what they're doing. Right. What they have access to. Right. Because the rest of us don't have access to that. Well, yeah. But also there's a lot of people that are just, you know, being like, well, I'm not going to wear a mask or, you know, that's an impingement on my freedom, blah, blah, blah. And like, um, that's what I'm talking to that vibe. Yes. And then there's people that have to go to school or work where people aren't doing any of this. And 
And that's a whole other thing. Or the people during the beginning of the pandemic, who were the people that had the worst mortality, which were the people who had to deliver stuff and show up and go to grocery stores. It wasn't right. just the healthcare workers. It was the grocery store workers. It was the delivery people. It's like a whole other class of people. Yeah. And then everybody's like, there's a labor shortage. And somebody I saw on a tweet is like, you know what? There's a labor shortage. They fucking died. Like, right. Like, you know, <laughs> It's like, yeah. that's what we did. We killed a bunch of people so we could have shit delivered, you know? So yeah. it's like, I mean, that. Yeah. That's where we're at. So it's not only is it not looking at it, it's also not looking at the disproportionate ways that it's affecting people. And I think that's something yeah. people are just like, la, 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 you know? Right. <laughs> right. Because I, because we don't know how to have those conversations. We don't know how to sit with those difficult feelings. We don't, and that uncertainty, right? Yeah. That, um, that what, so when I was married, my, um, and my children were three and five years old, my then husband had this sort of mystery illness that lasted for about three and a half years. And he would get sick and have to be hospitalized. He almost died multiple times. We were calling 911. Like there was, you know, and my kids saw him being carted out of the house on a stretcher multiple times, you know, I mean, um, and and so they formed this this sort of tenuous relationship with him around like I don't know that I can be connected to you because what if you just die? Right, yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah. And and watching that right and and trying to as a as someone who was raised Catholic and mm. had all these sort of ideas about mortality and the way the world worked and all mm -hmm. of those things right. Mm -hmm. Um trying to figure out ways to hold space for that for my children mm -hmm. while mm -hmm. simultaneously being in a, a similar space myself of like, what if he does just die? Right, <laughs> right, right, right. But we haven't learned, we haven't flexed that muscle. And I think having that experience as painful and scary as it was, and it did end up working out. We did after three and a half years, finally find a doctor who could figure out what the hell was going on and fix things. But uh, yeah. um I think that that informed the way that then I showed up for my parents when they were dying, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and so, and, and one of the things that really struck me in the book, this, I didn't realize this, I, I wasn't planning this, but this is the perfect segue. One of the, the, the essays or stories that struck me in your book was that where you talk about, um, the definition of the word irresponsibility. Uh, yeah. And I just, so I'm going to read this, this quote that I did, like I sat with that and I went back and read it and then I sat with it some more and I went back and read it because it just, because I've had that experience, but you know, you are writing about being present with someone who is dying, but not necessarily imminently. Like they're not going to mm -hmm. die in the next hour. They're not going to die in the next, you know, and you, and you write on this, there's this undefined, an unpredictable time and space between life and news of impending death. And, and you defined that or you decided that the word for that was irresponsibility. And I love the way that you unraveled that. And I wonder if you would be willing to kind of unravel that for folks. Well, do you mind... I I would, if if it's okay with you, could I read part of that essay? And yes, absolutely. A little bit because honestly, 
in that case, I feel like I worked so hard to word that in a specific way. So if I tried to sort of... Um, yeah, no, please read it. Because it is, it's one of those things, like I said, I went back and I read it and then I sat yeah. with it and then I read it smart because it is this really nuanced um, idea. Yeah, yeah. Well, if you're okay with it, I'll, I'll read yes. it. Yes, um, yeah, go for yeah, it. Yeah, okay. Because it kind of speaks to all these things. And this is a, definitely a transition moment for me too mm -hmm. about it. Um, mm -hmm. On an island in Scotland where you go to fall ever more deeply into yourself, a place where distractions fall away like so much confetti. And after some days, you finally happen upon that elusive on the verge of extinction creature yourself. You are contemplating why you cannot think of a word for the quality of presence of sitting next to someone when you both know they're dying, but whose dying is not imminent. It isn't mortality because you aren't the one dying. There are words such as holding vigil or accompanying for sitting with someone in their last days or hours, but nothing you could find for the more liminal space of sitting with someone over the course of weeks, months, or even years between their diagnosis and their last days. You've communicated with others who have experienced this, and none of them have a name for it either. Well, there may very well be a word for this in another language or culture, though you could not find one, perhaps because diagnostic technology makes this a relatively modern phenomenon. You wonder if you couldn't find such a word in part because in your world that is obsessed with productivity, it seems there is little acknowledgement of the need someone might feel to share with a beloved the undefined and unpredictable time and space between life and news of impending death. <clears throat> so you begin to consider the word for being totally present while sitting near someone who is dying is in fact irresponsibility. <laughs> Because mortality calls on you to do what you need to do in that moment, whatever it is, regardless of external responsibilities. And if you think about it, the only time you don't care about all those things is either when you're engaged in a creative project or someone is dying. Hmm. And I could go on, but I think that is kind of what you're talking. Actually, the, let me just read the next paragraph. When your childhood and young adult mentor and best friend and person who helped raise you, for which there is no name, because he was your third father's best friend in college, and they were both gay but not partners, and so what is that? But he was your chief witness and protector during times of many troubles, and when he died far too early at 51, quickly, frighteningly quickly, of pancreatic cancer, you were so glad you had let go of your theater company a couple months earlier so you could be there for him if you had been, quote, responsible you would not have been present, but instead you were. And it goes on about that. And I think that that's what is, you know, then there's, uh, and then what happened, and I'll just kind of, so I don't, because it's a, a long essay, so I don't want to read the whole thing, but it's about when he died and I had been responsible and gone to see somebody's uh, play they wanted me to see, and I really didn't like the play, and I wanted to leave, and I stayed the second mm -hmm. act because it was a friend of mine in it, so I felt responsible. Yeah. And then because of that, then I get home, and I find out that he's died, and if I had been home, I could have gotten to the hospital in time. Yeah. And so, the, so besides just this horrible, gut-wrenching feeling of the floor coming out underneath me, I said, you made a solemn vow to yourself in the world that you would never consciously waste anyone's time ever again, mm. that you would always leave shows you hated, 
That's true. I've done yeah. that. that you would follow <laughs> your intuition and allow yourself to be irresponsible, mm-hmm. but you didn't put it that way. All you said is, I'll never waste anyone's time ever again. But you know now you meant being irresponsible because only when irresponsible can you be present for what matters. Life and death has nothing to do with anyone's plans and schemes, paying the bills, updating social media, answering emails, doing the dishes or worrying about pensions. Mortality could give a fuck. Yeah, that that's that, that hopefully that kind of unravels a lot of those. Yeah, I think. um so I I teach um, grief and rage workshops for folks, and one of the things we, one of the very first things we do in that workshop, is to spend time in inquiry about what are all of the rules that we've learned about grief and rage in our lifetimes. What are all the unwritten social contracts that we have agreed to? Right. The things that make us responsible, you right. know, you're allowed to grieve for a certain period of time. You're allowed to grieve certain things. You're, mm-hmm. um, you know, you're allowed to um, express your grief in certain ways and with certain people, but not with other people. Like there's this whole, right. And then, um, and then there's the social contracts that we sign around collective grief, right? How many mass shootings have we already had in this country this year, right? But somehow the social contract that we've signed with each other is that we get enraged, we post about it on social media, we sign a petition, we put something else on social media, and within 48 or 72 hours, we're back emptying email inboxes and, mm-hmm. you know, doing our thing. And and then we might yell about it a little bit when it's time to vote again, but but really, for the most part, like that's what we've decided our cycle is collectively around this. And so that to me speaks to what it means to be responsible versus irresponsible, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I just, I really, I really liked that because I, um, so my dad had lung cancer and it um, progressed. It was, he died 18 months after his diagnosis and he had had, Mm -hmm. you know, surgery to remove part of one lung and lymph nodes and he had chemo and radiation and whatever, all the things. Um, But in the last, you know, eight weeks, we knew it was the last eight weeks. Right. And, and there was this quality of my kids were little. I think they were six and eight years old. And he lived like a five and a half hour drive away from from where I lived with my kids and my then husband. But there was this quality of time just sort of falling away or stretching out and like nothing mattered because I needed to be with my dad. Exactly. That's exactly the, the thing I meant. Yes, it's, it's that exact thing like my it's ironic because the first time I experienced it with my grandmother and she had lung cancer as well and this was mm-hmm. in the 70s so she died a bit faster but I was with her in Maine in this island I was 16 and my mother was backing back and forth trying to keep her job it was a long mm-hmm. it, it was a crazy situation for her um and I was basically the primary person and it was the same. It was like this bubble. It was just like this place that we were. And 
Oddly enough, then, and every time since, it never scared me. This is the weirdest thing. Like, I have never, and and she liked being with me because I just wasn't freaked out. Like, I just, I don't know why I'm so calm around it. I have no idea. Like, when I went to see my father, who I'd barely known, you know, and was with him when he died, and I'd never been with someone when they actually died, because I was with her for that liminal space, but I wasn't, my mother was with her when she actually died a few months later. Um. But like same thing when I went to see, and I was really nervous because I'm like I've never been with somebody when they actually died, and I had to make the decision about his stuff because I was his only relative, even though he bred. It was a long, really weird story, but yeah, that moment it turned out to be this amazing moment. Like it was just like, oh my god, you know, you just see it happen. It's like okay, that person just left the building. Like, and yeah. and it's not scary. It's just hard to explain, but you're just like, oh, they're just not there anymore. Like, yeah. and and um, hilariously though, in his case, uh, this is in my stage text at the end, the, is he had a heart, whatever, what's it called? Pacemaker. So it kept bleeping. Mm-hmm. So that was pretty funny. Actually, it was kind of, he would have enjoyed it. I mean, yeah. <laughs> like yeah. it. but like that, but, but the liminal space you're talking about, I understand. And, and the same there, just time, it's just everything shifts like it just doesn't. And and then you begin to realize that all these things that are considered important. I think this is where the gift is of when you really face mortality like that, yeah. even if it's not your own yet. Yeah. That all those things that we think are so fucking important. I just aren't. You know, it's just like yeah. it, it, it's just it, they, they, they it's like it's more like there are things we mark time with or something or we create these weird little fictional things about. But they're actually not important. Yeah. Yeah. Doesn't mean I, I don't buy into them all the time. <laughs> I mean, just to be clear, I, I'm not like I some think, fucking saint or anything, but I'm just saying it's just those are the times when you're like, oh my God, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's like, it's almost like you just sort of stepped outside of the the regular world for a while and you're in this space and then I mean it's not like we have an option to just completely divorce ourselves from the regular world right but mm-hmm. but it does um it shifts your perspective if you are able and willing to be present with that experience yeah, yeah. yeah. thank you for that yeah and I think it's important. Oh sorry, you wanted to move on. I just wanted to say something quick which is I think it's important to remember and hold on to that though because I think it is I'm just realizing even though sometimes people have various ideas of how much time you should spend or not or this or that most people understand the need for that so it's one of the few times mm-hmm. we're given permission. Yeah. To be, as you said, you know, you said dipping in and out, like that's one of the few times we're allowed to actually be in this space of understanding mm-hmm. mortality. Yeah. Yeah. So I was also struck by something that you wrote about, um, and and you said it a couple of times in the book, and that is, there is no perfect way to die. Mm-hmm. And there's also yeah. no perfect way to live. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, well, that, like, uh, that I really was struck with, uh, though I've been struck with it many times, the, the very long, very, very hard essay to write Dragonfly Time about my cousin's death, because she's mm-hmm. the closest to a sister I had, and she was actually with my grandmother, Janie, when she died. She was the Milwaukee branch, and I was mm-hmm. the Northeastern branch, and um, uh, and I actually met her after Janie died, Um 
So to be with her, you know, and I, I it was in that case, it was just a week before she was dying. But just watching, it was just like she had, you know, gotten the cancer before and then it remission and then back, you know, it's just mm-hmm. that horrible breast cancer dance and her, her mother had died of it. And anyway, it, it, it was it, just that horrible, long drawn out thing. And her husband had been amazing. It was just unbelievably great, you know, and her two kids were, you know, they were kids and then teenagers and considering that they were amazing, you know, every, you know, and even with all of that, like, in other words, my father was a shambolic mouse and so it was a shambolic mouse, but then <laughs> yeah. would, what you would expect. But like right. with, with Darcy, it was like, there's this whole, everything was like, oh my God, and we're trying to do everything right. And still like, there they are at the very end, just talking about the weirdest things. And I was with her too. And it was just like, so all the stuff they had wanted to get done or somehow, I don't know. It just didn't yeah. happen. You know, I mean, it, it was still was fine. There was a beautiful memorial, all the things, but it was like, and I just realized there were all these things unsaid even between mm. her and him. And I don't know, there was just all this stuff that I saw because I was right there. And I was like, oh my God, you know, and it was this moment of just compassion of just like, yeah. okay, look, there's no, you can try to be the best person in the world and you can try to do everything right <laughs> and, yeah. and people a lot of people do i mean actually we, you know we see the news about all the people who don't but there's most people who are trying to do all all those things i believe yeah. and like you know still and all death and when it comes and how it comes and what it's going to do is going to mess your shit up and yeah. <laughs> sorry my language is so wrong. no it's fine but it's all good that's the way i speak but um but then I realized that the corollary is the same with life, right? Because I, you know, have spent so much time in my life, as I think a lot of people do. I don't think this is that unusual, trying to figure out what's the next right thing to do and what's right and what's right. And, oh, my yeah. God, and is this wrong? And, and I mean, yeah. part of it is trying to, to fit into norms. In my case, I realized you just aren't going to happen. I, you know, in the midst of all this, I realized I was autistic as well, which is a whole other scene. But like, <laughs> but like, even aside from that, <laughs> which is a big thing, but still, it's like, there's these attempts to fit into norms, which that now is gone, thank God. But, but even aside from that, there's still this sense of like, well, whatever. And then kind of beginning to kind of really realize like, yeah, there's, I'm never going to be perfect and neither are you and neither is anyone else. And maybe, and maybe this is just me. I don't know. But like, I know I've had either a conscious or unconscious zeal for that. And maybe because I don't want to be criticized. I don't know what it is, but it's not going to happen. It's like, and like somehow realizing that then I can accept myself and then I can accept you. And that's the important part because I know this is like such a commonplace, but it's true. Like anytime I'm judging someone else, inevitably there's an aspect of that thing I'm judging that's in me, you know, it's like, and, and I mean, other than being a psychopathic gun violence person, but like, you know, really don't have that, but, (laughs) but, but, you know, you get my point. Yeah. Well, and I think, I mean, that's why I think I'm so fascinated by the, the, work that I do now because it's all around relationship right and and so the moment that my dad died like it was certainly not the perfect death right like towards the end he for the last week or so he couldn't talk because he had this huge tumor in his throat um 
And and he was too weak to like, we really couldn't communicate except just by right. looking at each other and squeezing hands and things like that. Right? right. And so, and I know he was in a great deal of pain and, you know, and yet, you know, he was at home and we had hospice and all of his mm-hmm. siblings and even his father and my siblings were all able to like cycle through and over a period mm-hmm. of a couple of days and say goodbye to him and give him a hug. And, be, you know, mm-hmm. and it's like, it was this really beautiful thing. And also, you know, I know that my sister was unhappy with the way things were. I know that my dad's wife was unhappy with the way things were because my dad wanted me there and he died Mm -hmm. in my arms. Mm -hmm. You know, he wanted me to be the one in the room with him alone when it was time Mm -hmm. for him to go. Mm. And so it was one of the most beautiful and also painful experiences of my life. Mm-hmm. And I know that there were other people that experienced that differently, right? There mm-hmm. were people that were upset mm-hmm. about it. There were, But it's like, relationships are messy. Human beings are messy. Mm-hmm. Like we're going to go through our lives and screw up and hopefully learn from that and keep moving forward and, you know, all of that, right? And so... Um, So, yeah, but I think we do idealize those sort of big events, right? It's like there's Mm going to be a perfect wedding or a perfect death or a perfect first day at work or a perfect first day at school for my kid or what, you know, like, (laughs) and, and it's crazy because it's not a thing because Mm -hmm. we are in relationship with other human beings. And Mm -hmm. the consequence of that is unpredictability, no control, and it's going to be messy. Yeah, and it can go so many ways. Like my father's death, I was there. Turned out I was alone in the room with him, even though his partner was around, but she was somewhere else. So we couldn't find her. And mm-hmm. um, I'll just leave it at that. And uh, and um, so I was there. And mm-hmm. you know, and what I was, I did is I was rubbing his head with this lavender stuff that somebody, one of the nurses there, gave me, and. Um, and what I did say is you are loved, which I realized I could say honestly. Yeah. And and then he just and it was amazing, mm-hmm. you know, but it was completely bizarre. And then literally a half second later, somebody ran in and said, Virgin Airlines has to talk to you about changing your flight. Like it was just hilarious. I mean, it was perfect. Right. It was just <laughs> like, of course, you know, this is like an American death. Right. OK, so that yeah. was that one. You know? Yeah sacred virgin airlines you know um needs to prove that you're here for a real reason like i'm like oh my god you know and and, and the woman was horrified by the way the woman who walked in she's like i'm so sorry i tried to get them to stop they will not and i'm like oh my god oh my god anyway and so i that was that was that and then on the other hand with my stepfather who was my my last stepfather the one my mother was married to the longest he died and he had you know the uh, he had been intubated uh, my mm. mother agreed to it not knowing that he wasn't going to get unintubated so they never were able to talk after that oh and i know which she just was like oh my god you can imagine because she was woken up really early in the morning she'd been at the hospital and they he'd been getting better and then suddenly they're like she needs to be intubated we have permission and of course she said yes right and yeah. then it was like, but then they had to put on propofol or whatever the thing is called. Oh, propofol, yeah. Because it's too scary, whatever. So yeah. there he was unconscious. So when, by the time I got there, he was unconscious. And I did things like read him. I mean, he was there for a few days like that. And I read him on Bloomsday. I read him um, 
uh, Ulysses because he loved Joyce. And mm. I just literally re- read to him I was more hoarse. And I just sat there with him and as did other people. And um, as, did, you know, his daughter was there, his biological daughter. And so when he died, the people that were there was his biological daughter, my mother and me. And they each had one of his hands and I had one, his feet. And I was rubbing his feet and I brought his Ganesha statue in Mm -hmm. (laughs) because he loved this Ganesha statue that a Nepalese friend had given him. Yeah. And so when he died and his last breath, it's just this wave of love came. Mm -hmm. It was like literally almost knocked me over. I had never experienced anything like that. And in his case, and this is something I also want to say, different people die differently. Mm-hmm. I was like, he just went off the wheel of suffering. It was just the weirdest thing. It was like, mm-hmm. my father didn't, but my son, he did. It was just like, he went, wow. he went, he went there. I don't know how to explain it. Can't explain it. Just know what happened. And, yeah. and I had all these intense dreams with him and all this stuff going on. And then meanwhile, my mother was a wreck. My poor mother, on the other hand, like that was my experience back to this thing. But then like, you know, he wasn't in my day-to-day life. My mother was wrecked. You know, yeah. and she was having nightmares and she was a wreck. And, yeah. you know, and I was trying my best and I almost felt guilty. Like, like I felt guilty that I'd had this beautiful experience. <laughs> it was like this strange thing where I like, yeah. and, and, and then she's just wrecked. Yeah. And, um, and of course she is like, I'm not, this is not me judging her at all to be perfectly clear. No. Perfect sense. Yeah. And it's just that it is. I'm just, I'm just riffing off what you said. It's just that thing of like, there's all these ways people react and and people have all these different responses and yeah um and it has so much to do with I, I was so many things you know yeah. how how you're connected to that person and on what channel like there's different channels you're connected to people on I think and I it was yeah. connected to him on a spiritual channel. I really was, which again sounds really woo, but was sort of true. And um, yeah. so that's the channel that was affected for me. You know, it was he wasn't my day to day. Yeah, yeah. No, I get that. I mean, my dad and I um, had a really special, very unique connection that was different than the connection that he had with my siblings, and it was different than the connection that he'd had with his wife and. And so um, I know that my experience of his death was very, very different than, and and we were partners in it. I mean, he had made Mm -hmm. me promise to not let him suffer too much, you know, like, um, and, and to be the one, you know, to let him know when it was time to let go because he knew his wife would not be able to say to him, it's okay, you can go, mm-hmm. you know, that was, mm-hmm. she, she, she wasn't ready for that. Right. So, right. Right. yeah. So I think it is, um, I think it's really interesting to think about, you know, there, if I'm the person who's dying, there's no way I'm going to be able to engineer it so that everybody's okay with it, that everybody's going to feel good about it. Like it's, that's just not going to be a thing. And so, I'm just going to tell my 51 year old self right now to let myself off the hook for that. Like, however anybody else experiences my death is going to kind of be on them. <laughs> yeah, I, I think so. I think I pretty much can let that one go. Yeah, I think I think that. <laughs> yeah, I'm just I'm, I'm I can't engineer that for sure. So. Um, yeah and it's always cracks me up to the people who would be like i don't want anybody crying at my funeral it's like you know what you don't get to say that just shut up no (laughs) no that's the most ridiculous thing to say in the world oh my god yeah oh 
my so, God. All right. Well, so I have one last question for you, which I think is kind of a big question. Um, mm-hmm. And it also pertains to something you wrote about in the book, and that is legacy. And I'm curious mm-hmm. that for you, what does legacy and thinking about our legacy have to do with the way that we relate to our own mortality? Yeah, good question. Um, honestly, that was there as a question. I don't think I've answered it. Um, I What I was dealing with in that instance or what was coming up that I was writing about had a lot to do with the fact that I don't have children. And, um, you know, one of the reasons, you know, part of it is just a biological thing. And, um, right. uh, and, you know, that's the common legacy, right? That's usually, you know, it's yeah. like, okay, but my children will go next or, you know, whatever. Yes. And um, yeah. and then I have a legacy in the world. I don't. Yeah. Um, and that's a big thing. And then I have to be careful because then I start thinking, okay, well, you don't have kids, so you better win the Nobel Prize in literature or something. You know, I mean, <laughs> yeah. Do you know what I mean? So I like, do. Well, if you're gonna, you better justify that shit, you know, because yeah. like you don't have kids. So you right. better like fucking do something. Yeah. Big, big. Yeah. <laughs> Huge. You, you have know? to make your mark but, on the world. Right. <laughs> exactly. You know, um, and so there's that. You know, um, and I also know it's ridiculous, but at the same time, it's there. You know, it's that weird kind of double vision thing, right? Like, on the one hand, you're like, okay, that's absurd. But on the other hand, it's real. And um, so there's been a lot of pressure on my work because of that. Um, And uh, and then also, you know, when I'm not stuck in that weird dialectic, I do see there's another whole thing, which is the way we're actually connected, right? So that Mm. it's that weird, you know, it's the butterfly effect thing, right? It's like, you really don't know. I mean, and, and the more I think about the world and the more I think about people in the world, and I'm not worried about myself and my own little fucking problems, I like... I noticed that the people who do the little things, you know, these little things to make somebody's life better or they or they take the time and are present with somebody dying or they yeah, whatever, just little things. Yeah. are probably more important to be honest than the big thing people. <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean we're we're so used to looking at the big things and thinking yep. those are what's important. And 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 just, you know, whatever, some of them really are, but at the same time you know, even the big things, a whole bunch of little things happened before that big thing happened. Right. You know, it's like the iceberg thing, right? It's like you see yes. the tip of the iceberg and then there's all this stuff underneath. Yeah. So, so honestly, nobody knows. Talk about things we don't know. You know, who knows what their legacy is going to be? Like, nobody knows. Yeah. I mean, Emily Dickinson didn't think she was going to be a famous poet after she died, you know? Right. <laughs> right? I mean, she died. Yeah. Nobody published her poems. Sure. Interestingly, they didn't publish her poems because she wouldn't change them. This is also very interesting. Like they, there were options she had to get published if she would change her poems, and she chose mm. not to. So, hero. But um, yeah, <laughs> but absolutely. like you know, because like so, she decided her legacy was that she was going to keep her poems the way they were, regardless. Yeah. Now you know, and and maybe she had some intuition about. It. I don't know. Or Kafka wanted his stuff burned. It was just this housekeeper who didn't burn his. The only reason we have Kafka's work is his housekeeper didn't didn't 
do what he asked her to do. Right, right. Yeah, so I love that. There's two <laughs> There's two things in there that I love. You know, number one is the idea of the little things, right? Like if I'm having, if I get to the end of my day and I think about the thing that had the most impact on me, is it going to be the friend who sent me a really sweet text message and said, hey, I'm just thinking about you today. And I just realized I'm grateful to have you in my life. Or is it the person that invented the toaster, Mm -hmm. right? Which one is more important to me? Hands down, the person that sent me a text message and said, I'm thinking about Mm -hmm. you, right? Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. the the person who invented the toaster probably has a bigger legacy (laughs) because they invented the toaster. But but the person that had the the bigger impact in my life, right, Mm -hmm. is, Mm -hmm. is the person who did that little thing. Mm-hmm. And I mm-hmm. and I think that that sort of ties to the Emily Dickinson thing, right? It's like when we live in alignment with who we are and our values and our purpose, we have no idea what the ripple effects are. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And often mm-hmm. those are the people that are that end up having the most impact, you know, mm-hmm. the ones who are mm-hmm. just really, really, really living in alignment, the most positive impact anyway. And there are a lot of people that have a negative impact who are not living in alignment with their values. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But the other thing that I really, that I, that strikes me about the legacy mortality thing is I think the idea of legacy is sometimes a, a back door into us denying our mortality. It's like, oh, oh well, I'm going to go on somehow. Yeah. <laughs> I will be remembered. I need to have had, you know, I have to have had kids so that they'll be my legacy or I have to found this company so that it can be my legacy so that even if I physically die, everybody will still know. It's like that. I have to be famous kind of thing. (laughs) Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. No, it's all about avoiding death. Absolutely. A hundred percent. And, you know, um, I also the way I get out of that one is when I find myself falling into that, which I do often, is I'm like, okay, and then in whatever billion years, the whole earth is going to be exploded by the sun. So like, really, you know, you just it's not going to work. Like, it's just not going to work. Like over the long haul, you know, we're connected to like the thing I feel the calmest about. I don't know if you've seen some of the uh, wonderful photos of the James Webb telescope. And my favorite is the protostar. Have you seen that one? No. Oh, my God. It's an incredible photo. Um, I'll see if I can find it because I can actually bring it that no one else could see it. But anyway, look it up. Look it up, people. Okay. Well, if you send me the link, then I'll put it in the show notes so people can look at it. I will do. Awesome. Because it's this... It, it's like these, it's basically like, um, uh, like an egg timer looking, uh-huh. thing, you know, yeah. but it's this proto. So it's like, it's, it's where the stars are being formed. And, and there's also the Carina Nebula, which is also like that. And like, I just look at that and I go, oh my God, you know, and I also had, and I should end with this because this relates to the proto star. Cause what it reminds me of is when I was, my first actual brush with my own mortality was realizing uh, I was an alcoholic and had to get sober, which I did mm-hmm. in 1986, mm-hmm. seven. So seven, I'll be 36 years sober in a, in a few weeks. Wow. And I, in the process of that, I went through some spiritual stuff. And one of the things that happens, I was at a bus stop. This is when I'm just like 24 years old. I'm at a bus stop. And suddenly, out of nowhere, I'm like, burst out of the universe. And it's like, you know, the last scene in 2000, 
one where it's like the stars are going and it's like, oh my God, I think this might be somewhere in the mortality shot. And then it's like, I was outside of the universe and outside of everything and then I was right back. And it was just Mm. like this amazing moment. And, and the proto star kind of reminds me of that. So it kind of almost is almost like a, a snapshot of the moment and it was so real and I knew everything was how it was supposed to be. It was one of those moments it's like, you know, you can look at William James varieties of religious experience. It's just like like one of those, you know. Yeah. Which he which in that he talks about people who have these spiritual experiences that change their life. And I never had to have a drink after that. Mm. And it's like, you know, wow. And yeah. also like what? And then I also then, you know, I just want to add this because it's important. I actually was just writing about this. My first instinct with that, you know, well, first of all, I was arguing with it immediately because there was this woman yelling at her child next to me. I'm like, well, everything can't be the way it's supposed to be. This woman's yelling at her son, you know, so I was having a whole intellectual thing with it. Meanwhile, my whole entire being knows everything's exactly the way it's meant to be. But then I decided it meant I was the shit. And then I decided I didn't have to follow the rules. And then I ended up, you know, just barreling right into a horribly destructive marriage for 12 years, you know, just because I knew everything. Right. Right. So did he. He I have been enlightened. (laughs) I've been enlightened. He thinks he's enlightened. We're enlightened. We'll go off and have our own little private recovery program that worked really well. Not. Mm. And then luckily that ended. Long story. But the point is. That And then I realized, then I got back into recovery and got back in relationship to a whole group of people and instead of just one other person in a really destructive thing. And it was like, oh, my God, that's what that was about. That mm. wasn't about me being enlightened. That was about a, an invitation to see connection. You know, that was what that was about, that this is all so I don't know if this is making any sense, but like, yeah, but that's where I go. Like when I, you know, it, it's a touchstone for me, you know, yeah. that now, in other words, I use it as a touchstone, it, that experience, it comes back to me when I'm like, oh, and I'm like, wait a minute, hold on. Yeah. You had that experience, you know, you had that experience, it changed your life. And, you know, it doesn't mean you're special. It just means you had an invitation to see that. And so, um, yeah. So and then yeah, and then the question becomes what what am I going to do with that, right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. 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 And, and I think that you know it, it's it's like that's what I come back to in the the positive legacy thing. Mm-hmm. It's not so much a legacy as, you know, I have a Nobel prize or a wing of a hospital or I invented the neutrino toaster or whatever. Right. <laughs> um, <clears throat> but instead that understanding that connection and therefore, yeah. Um, you know, it's like both wearing life as a loose garment and all that, but at the same time also really understanding like, yeah, you know, I, what I do and don't do does matter, even if it's not obvious. Um, yeah. Well, yeah, because as much as we try to deny it, as much as we try to ignore it, as much as we've been taught completely the opposite, we are all connected. Exactly. And there's and, no, and, there's, you know, so the legacy thing often is about me as an individual right, and what correct. can I do or what can, what is my name going to mean, right? Exactly. As opposed to the understanding that 
we are inextricably connected to exactly. all of life. Exactly. Animals, plants, exactly. humans, exactly. the water, like all of it. And and so it's not so much about a, a legacy that's a fixed thing, right? As it is this, how do we flow within the cycles of life? Where do we find our rightful place and and do the things that we were meant to to do to be a part of this collective? Right. Which means back to irresponsibility. Sometimes you have to make leaps and do things that appear very irresponsible. Yes. In yeah. order to do that. Sometimes when yeah. you're really connected to that flow, you begin to realize like, oh, I need to stop doing this seemingly responsible job or this thing or whatever, you know, there's, you you fill in the blanks, you know, and, and I've got to go do something else or allow something else. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Oh my gosh. This was amazing, Julia. Thank you so much for taking Uh, the time to talk to me today. Thank you. Um, all right, everybody, I'm going to put the um, links in the show notes so you can find Julia's writing and you can find her and um, hopefully we can see that amazing picture. Um, and yeah, I just realized I think I started a blog post with it. So I'll, I'll give the link to the blog post. So, cool. yeah. Awesome. <laughs> awesome. Thank you. Well, I appreciate it so much. Great. Thank you, Prairie. This has been wonderful. What a great conversation. Thank you so much. Thanks. That's a wrap. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of It's Relatable. I'm your host, Carrie O'Driscoll, and you can find links to all the things we talked about on this episode in the show notes on the webpage for the podcast at mindbodyspirit.fm. Please reach out to me with questions, comments, and ideas for the show and download episodes and leave reviews on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you stream podcasts. If you like, subscribe, and follow, You'll be sure to get updated whenever there's a new show to listen to. The music at the beginning and the end of the show is a clip from a song called Get By. It was written by Lauren O'Driscoll, Alexander Parker Lawrence, and Moses Ray Walker. The song is performed by Lorelai and Sam Rydell, and you can find the whole amazing song wherever you stream music. I highly recommend it if you need a mood lifter. I also want to give a shout out to Moses Walker for helping me produce this podcast. He is always and forever making these technical things seem so much more doable for me. And I am grateful for his expertise and advice. Until next time, take care, mind your relationships, and be well, everyone. Hi, I'm Jane Asher, and I believe, and from what I've been shown, that when our loved ones die, they don't really leave. They just slip into the next room. On my podcast, I explore the bigger picture surrounding life on Earth and what follows when we do die. I speak with authors, friends, transition specialists, and other experts about every facet of death, dying, grief, 
hospice care, cultural traditions, and also our beliefs about that final journey and what we may end up facing. Please join me on the next room on the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network or wherever you get your podcast.